from Mark chapter 8, continuing in our series on Mark, which we dip into um, when we don't have a particular other thing we're working through. So Mark chapter 8, verse 31. Mark 8, verse 31. Then he began to teach them that it was necessary for the Son of Man to suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests and scribes, be killed and rise after three days. He spoke openly about this. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning around and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You are not thinking about God's concerns, but human concerns. Calling the crowd along with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel will save it. For what does it benefit someone to gain the whole world and yet lose his life? What can anyone give in exchange for his life? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels." Well, when President Kennedy uh, announced the plan for humans to set foot on the moon, he said, we choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. It's in the spirit of doing hard things that uh, elite military units recruit young men um, to compete for positions that will put them in harm's way. Do you have what it takes to be the best of the best? Now, that's all good and well for soldiers and uh, elite soldiers and astronauts, but for a bunch of Galilean peasants, fishermen and so on, it was probably not very persuasive when Jesus said, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. There was no fame or elitism or glory in taking up a cross. It meant only agony, humiliation, death, and to guarantee your name would be forgotten in the annals of history. The demand to take up a cross was a a shockingly scandalous challenge in its day. I don't think you can really underestimate just how shocking that would have been for the disciples to hear Um, And it's in fact still shocking today. It is a stumbling block to Muslims today um, because of how shocking it is. One of the motifs uh, motifs we've seen uh, in Mark as we've gone through is the so-called messianic secret. And this is the idea that you and I as the reader know that Jesus is the Messiah, but the people around him don't. They're still working it out. Well, in this chapter, Jesus is ripping off the covers. He is now revealing himself um, as, as Messiah. Peter, in the previous uh, section, identified him as Messiah. Uh, and we start to see Mark and, and Jesus uh, use the phrase Son of Man regularly. Now, it's only occurred twice before this passage earlier on in the Gospel of Mark, both times were related to matters that um, were really reserved for God. 
uh, Jesus had authority to forgive sins. Well, in that context, only God has authority to forgive sins and Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. Well, Yahweh is Lord of the Sabbath. But now we're going to see Mark use it more and more. In fact, uh, beginning with this, Mark uses it 12 more times in the rest of this this gospel. Uh, And so Mark makes a point in in his narrative that Jesus speaks openly about these things. Jesus is starting to speak openly to his disciples, at least about who he is. Uh, He's speaking openly about his mission, why he has come, about his identity. Now, son of man was uh, apparently a common vernacular term um, in Israel. Uh, It could just refer to yourself. So it was like Jesus saying, I. Um, But he'll make it clear as we go along that there's more to this as well. This is a a clear reference to Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 to 14, uh, which says, I continued watching in the night visions, and suddenly one, like a son of man, was coming with the clouds of heaven. And Jesus will actually quote this or allude to it later on. He approached the Ancient of Days and was escorted before him. He was given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that those of every people, nation and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. With the revelation that Jesus is Messiah comes a shocking revelation about his mission. Now, Daniel's vision, if you listen to that, what do you think? You're not hearing someone who's going to go to a cross and die. You are hearing about a conqueror, someone God is delivering the world to. And that's what Jews expected Messiah to be, a conqueror. But Jesus talks about himself being a suffering servant. He will die at the hands of the religious, Jewish religious authorities and the Roman secular authorities. But then he'll rise again. Apparently no one keys into that part. That The Jews expected a resurrection of the dead at the end of the age. They don't really get what Jesus is talking about in this point. Now, the notion that Messiah would die, is that me or... Okay, cool. Um, The notion that Messiah would die, uh, let alone suffer death, that was scandalous. One of the ways you... You know, there were a lot of people who claimed to be Messiah around this time, and one of the ways you figured they weren't Messiah was when they got killed by the Romans. It was inconceivable for his followers. So, And obviously Peter can't stomach it, so what does Peter do? Takes him aside and starts rebuking Jesus... That is how scandalised Peter is, how shocked he is. Peter rebukes his master. And Jesus' response must have come like a slap to Peter. He turns around and he says, get behind me, Satan. Where is this coming from? My goodness. Satan is using Peter to try and discourage Jesus from the path laid out before him. And what does Jesus say? God's Agenda is not the same as human agendas. For human, uh, for people, for us, the path to glory is usually vanquishing your enemies. It's succeeding in business. It's 
overcoming. And isn't, when you think about it, this is what God has always done in Israelite history. You think back, the Exodus. He delivers his people in, in, in this mighty judgment on Egypt. The conquest of Canaan is a military victory. David and Goliath. David driving out the Philistines. And even in more recent history for uh, where our story is, in, in the brief period uh, between the Greek occupation of Israel and the Roman occupation, the Maccabeans had driven out the enemy by force and established uh, a monarchy very briefly. So this is what their history tells them. This is what common sense tells them, experience tells them. But for Jesus, it's completely different. The path to glory and the path to victory is through suffering and humiliation. And in fact, most of the references to the Son of Man in the remainder of Mark are in regard to his suffering and humiliation. I don't think this is a great recruitment strategy. <laughs> Jesus probably should have consulted with a marketing company. I don't know. Well, Peter tries to rebuke Jesus. And so Jesus gathers his disciples. He gathers everyone. So he gathers the crowd as well. Because what he's about to say is for everyone. What he's about to say is not just for those first disciples. It's for all his disciples. Anyone who wants to follow him. If the way of the Messiah, the way of the Son of Man, who will be given dominion, is the way of suffering, then the same goes for his disciples. Jesus will go to the cross, and we must follow him with a cross. Jesus will enter his glory through death, and so do we. We recently had the spectacle of the coronation uh, of King Charles III when he was enthroned King of Australia. And I say that just to shock you, test who are the monarchists and who are the republicans here this morning. Well, there was a lot of pomp and ceremony around that, that event. Um, and, you know, what we saw was the king was all dressed up in his regalia and all his servants were dressed up in their regalia as well. That was befitting for the occasion. You know, when theologians sometimes talk about the cross being Jesus' enthronement, his coronation, is that as shocking to you as it is to me? <coughs> Jesus has been talking about the kingdom of God and at the cross he takes up his royal throne in that kingdom. And just as it was fitting... For Charles's servants to be decked out in all their ceremonial regalia, what about Jesus' servants? If the, if the coronation, the enthronement of a king is full of pomp and ceremony, and the servants follow that, the, the, the enthronement of Jesus is the opposite, full of death and suffering, what's appropriate for his servants? What should we wear to reflect the glory of his enthronement. Jesus says, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. 
But just as suffering and the cross was the way to resurrection and glory for Jesus, so it is for us. He says, whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel will save it. Jesus leaves us with a really stark choice. You're going to experience shame one way or another. As a follower of Jesus, actually not even as a follower of Jesus, all of us are going to experience shame. It's just a matter of where. We, as Jesus' followers, can choose to take on shame before the world now in this life and receive God's approval and his glory in the next. Or we can choose to seek the world's approval in this life and God's shame in the next. Take your cross, Jesus says, and walk through death into resurrection life. What does this look like for us in 2023? I mean, for the first disciples, for some of them, it literally meant a cross. It would have been very confronting for them. They would have been very familiar with the image. We're not so. In many countries, the choice is still quite confronting. Um, Christians face arrest and death just for professing Jesus, just for following him. And even in places where persecution is social rather than state-sanctioned, it can still be violent and deadly. And yet, you know what? One of the fastest... Uh, one of the most persecuted churches in the world is in Iran. Do you know what the fastest growing church in the world is? Iran. Interesting, isn't it? In Australia, we don't face that kind of physical violence or even the social ostracism really at that level. But what we do face, not just for following Jesus, but what we do face is more subtle. Because what we see is the cross was an instrument of torture, but it was more than that. It was designed to inflict maximum suffering, but it was also designed to inflict maximum shame. The criminal carried the cross naked and was nailed to the cross naked. All the pictures we see of Jesus on the cross with a loincloth, he didn't have a loincloth. And Jesus said, whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation... The Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with, all, with the holy angels. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation. Jesus' challenge to us who follow him is not to be ashamed of him or his words. Because people will try to make us ashamed when we seek to follow Jesus' teachings. And when Jesus says his words, he means his teachings. Um, And I think those of the rest of the Bible, because Jesus said, some of his words were that the word of the Lord won't pass away. Jesus very clearly uh, held the Old Testament. Now, we apply that differently today. We have a different relationship to the Old Testament, but it is still the word of the Lord. So what does that mean for us? Well, for us, Taking up a cross probably doesn't mean physical threat, not in this country, but it may mean facing public shame. Um, And so where are the points of public shaming that might tempt you to compromise your faithfulness to Jesus? 
to the ways, words and works of Jesus, which is how we define discipleship at Bentley Baptist. So, look, we want to be wise in the way we deal with the world. We don't need to be unnecessarily confrontational. You don't need to jump on social media and and start a campaign about whatever it is that's got your goat. Um, But that raises another question is, where's the line between playing it smart and falling into compromise with the world through our silence or perhaps agreement with things? Now, the point of compromise will be different for each of us because, you know, we... Scripture is clear, but there are slightly different ways we understand Scripture sometimes. We don't all agree on everything. Hopefully we agree on the core of things. And as Bentley Baptists, we have a statement of faith which we expect all our members to hold to. But there's a lot of grey areas for us. So compromise for one person, up to a point, may look a little different to another, depending on your convictions before the Lord, depending on your tolerance for conflict. Some people are a lot happier to get in there. I'm really conflict averse. I just I hate getting um, in, into a fight with someone. Might be our particular vulnerabilities around work. Oh, if I stand up and make a noise here, what if I lose my job? That's very real. Or family or friends. What happens if my family starts to reject me? So we have to be wise and realistic about that, but there does come a point where we have to say no or yes to something unpopular in the eyes of the world because of our allegiance to Jesus. There comes a point where we're starting to act ashamed of Jesus. Last year, uh, Andrew Thorburn was CEO of Essendon Footy Club for about a day. And he was forced out because of his association. It wasn't because of anything he had done or said. It was because of his association with a church that preached against homosexuality. Now, And he was on the board of the church. And this was a really interesting case because Andrew Thorburn uh, previously had been the um, CEO of uh, National Australia Bank, the NAB, and had a record uh, in that bank of sort of promoting gay, uh, gay pride stuff that you know every corporate institution has to do. So there was no reason for people to target him because of his previous actions. What they targeted was his association with the church and his um, position on the board of the church. So presumably he could have quit the board of the church and kept his job. Instead, what did he do? He quit his job and stayed with his church. Now, here's a question. It's a genuine question because each of us might reason this through differently. But do you think he could have been faithful to Jesus if he'd made the other choice? If he'd stepped down from the board of his church? Interesting, isn't it? Now, of course... Andrew Thorburn is a wealthy man and could no doubt afford to lose his job. Many of us can't. I would wager most of us can't. 
But, you know, wealth doesn't make you immune from the intense scrutiny he went through and the criticism he went through because of his faith. It may not have hit him financially, but you can bet that it would have hit him emotionally. Now, this is where the rubber hits the road for many of us. We're unlikely to be forced to deny our faith for Jesus, but we might be pressured into compromising our commitments around the edges of our faith. The sort of consequences of our faith, the things we believe because of it. Maybe it's not in the workplace, maybe it is. But maybe it's speaking out around family or friends. Um, when just staying silent or tacitly agreeing would be easier. At what point does compromising around the edges, just to play it smart, start to stray into compromising the core, being ashamed of Jesus? Not an easy, it's not easy. I'm not saying there's easy answers to this. So how do we find the wisdom to know the limits uh, and the courage to stand by our convictions? How do we gain that sort of discernment? Well, I want to suggest, very simply, developing the mind of Christ. See, the world has a culture. You know, Christianity has a culture as well. There are things about Christianity that... You you go to a different country and there will be different expressions of the church that are quite culturally different. But on the other hand, there are parts of our Christian culture that are universal across the board because we have one Lord, one scripture, playbook we're reading reading from. And the thing is, the world wants to make you its disciple. We can't help being um, picking up the culture of the society we live in. It's just that's the way culture works. And the world wants to make you its disciple to cultivate that culture within you for you to take on its values and beliefs. But listen carefully. What does Jesus say about this generation, this world? What does he call it? Wicked and adulterous. There's a warning there for us. Look, there's a lot of things I love about our culture, but there's a lot of things that aren't good either. And so rather than letting the world disciple us, its culture getting inside of us, we need to let Jesus disciple us. We need to immerse ourselves in the culture of his kingdom. We need to develop, and it's something we have to develop. It's a deliberate process we engage with. We need to develop a kingdom mindset. And we do that by learning Jesus' way of love and holiness from his word and with his people. Because culture isn't just learnt from a book. It's learnt by engaging in a community. And that's why I think, honestly, when people say, I don't need the church, yeah, you do. You really do. And the church ain't perfect, but you really need the church. How do we develop that sort of culture? There's things we can do. Uh, the books we read, the music we listen to, the things we watch are all choices we can make. And I'm not saying we have to completely isolate ourselves from the world. We can't do that. But we can develop a kingdom culture. 
And what does that look like then? Living it out, it means learning, it means learning to love. Kingdom culture is a, a culture of a, a love for God. It's a culture of a love for one another. It's a culture of love for our enemies. And it's a culture of speaking the truth with love. And so when we allow the life of Christ to grow within us and to change us, to shape the way we see the world and think about the world, then the shame and suffering of the cross starts to take on a different hue. It starts to look like the road to glory because we're seeing it the way Jesus sees it. And we want to join the Messiah in his coronation ceremony. And look to that day when we stand in his presence and hear not words of shame and rebuke, but well done, good and faithful servant. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace because we couldn't do without you, without that. Lord, thank you that Jesus has gone before us. Thank you that you have given us your spirit. And we pray that through the tools you have given us, your presence with us, your word, your people, give us the courage, help us to develop the mindset and have a culture that reflects your kingdom. To not be ashamed, but to be bold and to trust you in that boldness. In Jesus' name, amen.